going to continue in our journey through the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Last week we noted that act itself and that wonderful truth that the blessing that we receive through that service is not because of the service itself. I believe that we've fallen into a trap of worldly thinking when we do things to receive the blessing. And the point that we tried to make last week was the blessing comes in the service itself. We are blessed as we serve others, not in what we receive for receiving others, although there are times when God also blesses that as well. The greater blessing is through our service, not in what we receive for that service. This morning we do continue to look at a more in-depth study of a man named Judas Iscariot. And we are this morning going to look at the doctrine of election and of reprobation. Often when men consider the doctrine of election, they only consider one side, the positive side of that coin, and not what we might consider to be the negative or or the uh, reprobation side of that. We're going to look at both this morning, really more on the reprobation because of what Judas represents in our text. But before we read the text, I've already prayed and we've already asked this morning that when we consider these things, we need to approach these things humbly and fearfully. I have grown up in the midst of a great resurgence of the doctrines of grace, and I'm very, very thankful for that. But I also know that in that resurgence of these grand doctrines, sometimes it has bred pride and arrogance instead of joy and humility. And the doctrine of election in Scripture is never given just to swell up our heads and to be able to win an argument. So this morning, let's consider just the fact that some of you may have come in this morning and said, oh, election and reprobation, here we go, with all humility and with great fear. May we approach these things this morning. I'm going to begin reading in verse 17, and we're going to continue uh, by way of exposition this morning, looking at verses 18 through 30. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. 
Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should uh, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And then the phrase, and it was night. It was night. Some of you might remember our armadillo story in our van some years back. If you don't know the armadillo story, that's fine. Uh, I'd be willing to tell you uh, the story again outside of the pulpit. But you remember, if you know that story, the end of it was not a very pleasant thing. That for two or three weeks we had part of an armadillo that was living in the engine of our van that we had run over and did not know it. And the way we came to know it is our cat... Uh, saw something falling out of the bottom of our engine when we got home from church one Sunday afternoon. And as I got up under the van and began to look at what was coming out, thinking it was liquid, when I poked what I saw at that point was the tail of an armadillo, maggots poured out from underneath the engine. It was the most gosh-awful smell and thing I have ever seen in my life. Now you say, what does that have to do with election? Not a thing. And I don't share that to just get your attention, although good introductions do get your attention. This one probably grossed you out. But nonetheless, why share the story? Well, in the Coptic tradition, they viewed this man named Judas in this way. The hatred of Judas was so intense, and writers, after the fact of the act of Judas Iscariot throughout the early church tried to write things that, that would paint a picture of Judas Iscariot that was the most heinous and despicable picture that could ever be painted. And in the Coptic tradition, it was said that after Judas had died, that maggots enter into his body, and because of that, he swelled greatly. And as they were carrying him through the gate of the city one day, He was so swollen that he got caught up in the gate itself and was cut and maggots poured out of him. That is the picture that is painted of this man named Judas. Given throughout the history of the church, there have been those different pictures that have been painted to set Judas Iscariot apart as the most heinous and wicked man that ever lived on this earth. And that's not without reason. He was. One of, if not the most despicable human being that ever lived on the face of this earth. He said in stark contrast today to the greatest human that ever lived on earth. The man named Jesus, who we considered last week, had knelt at his disciples' sinful, nasty feet and washed them. Here the creator of the universe, stooping in humility to serve the creature. And yet we see this morning the direct contrast to this man named Judas. I wanted to highlight a phrase this morning that I think is often overlooked in this text. Jesus says the words, I know whom I have chosen. And in those words we see not only the truth that Jesus knows all that he has chosen, In other words, this is a reminder to those apostles that what was about to take place at the hands of Judas did not come as any surprise to Jesus. 
He knew whom He'd chosen. He chose twelve men with particular purposes in mind. And so when Judas betrays Him, this is a reminder to these men, I know whom I've chosen. I know what's about to take place. This is going to come as no surprise to me. But not only does it say, I know whom I've chosen, but he's also demonstrating, I know for what I have chosen every man for. There were 11 men present that day in a state of confusion, as we'll see. I know whom I've chosen and I know why I've chosen you. And there was another, this man named Jesus. I know whom I've chosen and I know for what. You've been chosen for. This morning we are going to look at the doctrine of God's choice. And I've labeled it that way because God's choice does include both the doctrine of election and the doctrine of reprobation. We're going to consider both of those this morning, beginning with the doctrine itself. And then we're going to show why that doctrine was given on this occasion and also other places in Scripture. And then we are going to consider the example, uh, the bad example, if you will, of Judas and the purpose that he was chosen on this day. First, we're going to consider the doctrine of God's choice. In verse 18, Jesus reminds the disciples that he was not speaking of all of them. Again, flowing out of that verse 17 and the humility that should be shown in serving others. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, this is a direct reference to Psalm 41.9, where it was prophetically stated in the context of scripture, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And the reason Jesus chooses this occasion and this particular fulfillment of prophecy is that he has just risen from stooping to wash the disciples' feet. One of those men whose feet was washed was this man named Judas. And now the illustration is given that that man who I humbly stooped and washed his feet, he is going to raise his heal against me. He is going to demonstrate to everyone present that what I just did makes no matter to him and his sinful and hard and wicked heart. He will turn his heel and lift his heel against me. And it is he that takes the bread when it's offered. Now again, in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus had already opened up this idea of the wickedness of Judas. Jesus said to them, did I not choose you, the twelve? The answer is yes, he did choose each and every one of them. And yet one of you is a devil. Again, he's demonstrating this truth that I knew this from the very beginning. I chose all twelve of you and you will fulfill the purposes for which I chose you. And in verse 71 of of, uh, chapter 6, he spoke of Judas, the son of Iscariot, who, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And you remember, in uh, in another message, we made mention of the truth that when this Judas is mentioned, 
It's always given that he was going to betray Jesus. He is the betrayer, either in the act or in the very words. And then we see that in John 6, was going to betray him. So what do we think about when we consider these words, I know whom I have chosen? We do see in this text both the doctrine of election and reprobation set side by side. And I will submit to you that in our Southern Baptist culture, just the mention of the word election gains all sorts of different responses. And usually when one bows up against this teaching, when one makes the statement, well, I don't believe in election. Well, first of all, I've never met a Bible-believing individual who believes in the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture that would make such a statement if they knew what they were really saying. To say I don't believe in the doctrine of election is to say I don't believe in part of what God's Word contains. Now, they may not understand the doctrine of election. And by the way, I would submit to you as your pastor, I don't understand all that there is to know. There is still a mystery that is involved with this. But it's a huge leap from I don't understand what the doctrine of election means on whatever level and saying I don't believe it, period. Before the foundation of the world, we read in Ephesians 1, God chose a people for himself. We read in Romans 9 earlier that God loved Jacob purposefully. He hated Esau purposefully before they had committed any crime, before they'd even been born. It was not based on their actions. It was, according to Paul, to fulfill the good pleasure of the decrees of God. And so, often what men detest when they consider the doctrine of God's choice is not that positive side of election, but that negative side that we call reprobation. How could God, how would God um, destine somebody to hell? And they paint God out to to be some sort of monster. This idea that, well, God chooses some for salvation. But what does that mean? To suggest that you believe that, yes, God does choose some for salvation, what about the rest? Does God not know what's going to happen to them? Is it, is it right to say, well, He knows what's going to happen to the elect, but we're not sure what... No, there's an inconsistency when they say they don't believe in the other side, regardless of how you describe it. Our confession says that the reprobate are those whom, before the foundation of the world, God chose a people for salvation, that's election, but He takes his hand away or leaves them the rest to themselves. And the result is they will incur God's wrath for all eternity. And so some people say, well, I don't believe in double predestination and I don't believe in the destiny and all that. We don't need to get caught up in that. The truth of the scripture is he knows who he has chosen. And he has elect some to salvation and to the rest he has not. So they say... They detest not so much the positive side of God's choice, that God chooses some for salvation, but what that means for uh, those whom they reason God does not choose. And you see, there's a subtle error there. Because God does choose all men. 
to something. All men will fulfill God's purposes. There is the elect chosen for salvation, and there are those. Again, it doesn't matter how you word it, that God leaves to themselves and will also serve His purposes. God does choose to save some. By the way, the Scriptures say, few are those. And He also chooses not to save others. And the Scriptures say, many. Wide is the path. Easy is the path to destruction. So the caricature that's often painted when it comes to election in particular is this idea of wanting to uphold man's free will at the expense of God's freedom. You ever heard, well then, if you believe in the doctrine of election, what you're saying is that before the foundation of the world, it was already determined who would and who wouldn't. And so if a person wants to come, they can't. And that there are going to be those who don't want to come, that God brings down the aisle kicking and screaming. Do not let an opposer make that statement. First of all, let me ask you a question. Have you ever met somebody with their doctrine of election that has made the statement that if they wanted to come, they couldn't? I've never met one. I don't know where they come up with that argument. Or have you ever met somebody that said, well, if they don't want to come, then he's going to bring them anyway. I still haven't met one. And yet that's the argument that's often used against those that uphold positively from Scripture the doctrine of election. Well, you're saying the ones that want to can't, the ones that can't will. Or or, or that he will bring them that don't want to. And, And that's... An argument that I don't know where it comes from. But they do it trying to show, well, that man's will cannot be. And that's not what the Scriptures teach. They also offer an opposition to this doctrine of election because they rightly emphasize the love of God, but they wrongly emphasize it to the point of taking God's wrath out of the picture. There's an imbalance. They want to so emphasize the love of God that they would never set forth the truth that God does leave men to themselves. That God has created certain individuals to serve His purpose and that purpose is to fulfill His calling and His wrath will be poured out upon them. How else would God demonstrate His wrath and the promise of His wrath being poured out? And so it's a wrong emphasis on the love of God at the exclusion of the wrath of God. And we also see plainly, I think, in the teaching of Scripture, not only the teaching of election, but of reprobation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we read the words, For God has not destined us for wrath. He's writing to believers. Praise God. He's writing to the elect. He's writing to those at Thessalonica to encourage them to keep on keeping on. But what is the implication here? He has not destined us, the believer, to wrath. The implication is he has destined the others to wrath. But for obtaining salvation, he says, is our calling as believers. And that is not theirs. So we see, first of all, the idea of God's choice. And I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. So that the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I know who I've chosen. There are 11 of you that have chosen to carry on my work when I leave. And there's one of you that that has been chosen 
to carry on the work of your father, the devil. Election, reprobation. But we also see in this doctrine of God's choice, verse 19, the idea of divine foreknowledge. He says, I'm telling you this now before it happens, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, what was the purpose? That you may believe that I am He. There's no clearer picture of divine foreknowledge in given. Here's the reason all of this is going to take place. And I'm telling you before it happens so that you'll know the very purpose that the entire Gospel of John was written so that you may believe that I am the Christ, the Son of God. I am He. Now, this doesn't mean that He just knows what's going to happen. That's true. God does know all things before they take place. He ordained the very things that would come to pass. He does know all things that will come to pass. But it's not just the facts themselves. But in foreknowledge, particularly to salvation, God knows His people. He doesn't look down the quarters of time, as some believe, and based on your decision, what you will do, grant election. In other words, looking down the quarters of time, he knew that one day Doug, will, uh, Doug would receive Christ as Lord and Savior, that he would place faith in him. So he's elect. He elects him because he believes. Or Lori or Tim or any others that have come to faith. That's not divine foreknowledge. Divine foreknowledge is before the foundation of the world, Jesus setting apart a people for himself that he would pour out his love in, that he would pour out His grace in, that He would effectually call, and that would bend the knee, and He would give a new heart, and they would come to Him. And because of that, they follow Him in faith. You see the difference? Divine foreknowledge, Jesus says, I'm telling you these things are going to happen before they even take place. Now, some look at this and say, well, Jesus really didn't know which of the twelve was the betrayer. This whole story is given so that Jesus would know when he held out the bread, the one that took it, then he knew the betrayer. There's a problem with that. It's not what the text says. Did Jesus just hand out the piece of bread and wait for the person to take it? It very clearly says that Jesus took the bread. By the way, this bread would be the bread that was given to to the person in a place of honor. Particularly to a friend, but even more than that. It says that Jesus gave the bread to Judas. And what did Judas do? He took it. The common belief of that particular supper was that The one that Jesus loved was seated on his right. We know that from the scriptures, that is John himself. This is our first introduction as to the one who he loves. We'll see this again at the cross. We'll see it again at the resurrection. We'll see it again at the lake. John was seated at his right. Many believe, and I believe rightly so, that Judas was seated to his left. So that when... The incident takes place and it says that the one who Jesus loved leans on Jesus' back. He's next to him. And Judas is at his left. Now, if the bread 
is to be given to the one in the place of honor. What normally then would, or who normally would have received that piece of bread? The one on the right, John. Not Judas on the left. Jesus would have given it to John. But the Scriptures are very clear. He gave it to Judas. Why? Because he knew who the betrayer was. He didn't find out when Judas took it. He already knew in the very offering it to him. And so this divine foreknowledge covers both God's sovereignty and salvation as well as God's sovereignty in those who He will not save. All have a purpose. Now, I've mentioned the opposition to these sorts of things. Uh, I want to read just a couple of statements from a document that was given two years ago, just prior to the Southern Baptist Convention. And this document was entitled, A Statement of the Traditional Southern Baptist Understanding of God's Plan of Salvation. First of all, that title in and of itself is at best disingenuous and most a lie. What they put forth in that document is not what most traditional Southern Baptists believe. As a matter of fact, you could not find this in most of the writings of those who were around at the beginning of the Southern Baptist Convention, which I consider to be traditional. Again, the context from their perspective is this idea of election that God brings those kicking and screaming that don't want to come and those that want to come can't. Article 1 of that document, called the Gospel, says, We affirm that the Gospel is the good news that God has made a way of salvation through life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for any person. This is in keeping with God's desire for every person to be saved. To that I say, Amen. The, the Scriptures teach it is God's desire that all men be saved, but I would suggest that what they mean by that is probably not what the Scriptures mean or a way I interpret uh, that to mean. Because they follow. We deny that only a select few are capable of responding to the Gospel, while the rest are predestined to an eternity in hell. There is a problem with that statement. We deny that only a select few people are capable of responding to the Gospel. Is that what we teach? No, we teach that no man is capable of responding. Period. End of quote. Dead in trespasses and sins means that no man can respond unless God first does a work in their heart, gives them life. Which, later on in the document, they also deny. They say that faith comes before regeneration that, and, instead of the other way around. And so they say that we deny that only a few select people are capable. No, we, that's not what we teach. We deny that any man can. But then their focus is not so much on the few or the capability, but it's more on this idea of while the rest are predestined to an eternity in hell. There's that reprobation part that they just can't seem to get by. Article 6 of the same document, entitled The Election to Salvation. We affirm that in reference to salvation, election speaks of God's eternal, gracious, and certain plan in Christ to have a people who are His by repentance and faith. Amen. That's a clear statement. We deny that election means that from eternity, God predestined certain people for salvation and others for condemnation. Why? 
It seems to me in that statement itself, there's a, there's a contradiction. We affirm God's grace. We affirm God's eternal, gracious and certain plan to have a people that are His by repentance and faith. But we deny what He does with the rest. Our confession of faith speaks to this. Charleston Confession of Faith, chapter 3 of God's, decree, uh, of God's decrees, number 2.2 says, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions. In other words, there is the truth of the foreknowledge idea that God does know all. We don't dispute that. Yet, even in knowing all things that are going to come to pass and all circumstances related, yet... Has he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future? Or is that which would come to pass upon such conditions? In other words, he doesn't base his will on what man does. His decrees are his decrees. And they will most certainly come to pass. They're not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, the idea that he looks down the quarters of time and he sees that a man will believe... And based on that, he saves them. It's contradictory to Scripture. No, they believe, and he does know they will believe, but the reason they believe is because he set them apart. They're his. And his sheep know his voice. They hear his calling, and they will come to him. This is spelled out in part three. Of chapter 3, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, elected to the praise of his glorious grace. Don't miss that. Why is anyone chosen for salvation? To the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious grace. So both the elect and the reprobate are chosen before the foundation of the world to fulfill the purposes of God, and that purpose is His glorious grace. One will be saved, the other will not. One will spend eternity with Him, praising Him and glorifying Him for all eternity, the other will receive their just condemnation. His wrath will rain down on them to the praise of His glorious grace. Part 4. These angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Before the foundation of the world, it was set. Angels and men alike, those that would be with Him in eternity, and those who would suffer in a very real place called hell, His wrath deserved for their sin. Again, we read earlier in Romans chapter 9, I'm not going to reread that, but in those verses we're reminded of that truth that He loved Esau. I mean, He loved Jacob. He hated Esau. And He says, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And what was His purpose for raising up Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath, of destruction. He says, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that I might receive the glory, that men would see me at work 
in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whomever he wills. That is the doctrine of reprobation. That is the doctrine of God's choice, election, as well as reprobation side by side. Now, having seen that, I want us to note, secondly, the encouragement of God's choice. You say, well, how can you be encouraged by being chosen to be a vessel of his wrath? Well, no, you shouldn't be encouraged by that. Election is always, though, given, not always, but oftentimes is given as an encouragement to the saint. That's one thing that we need to consider. Again, in Psalm 41.9, we read the, the context of the one that would raise the heel against him and the one who would partake of the bread as his friend and go out and betray him. That's the picture that's given. But the immediate context of Psalm 41.9 is the story of David and Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's trusted counselor. And you remember, Ahithophel was swayed by David's son Absalom, who was raising up in rebellion against David, and he wanted the throne. And he got Ahithophel on his side. And Ahithophel betrayed King David. So when Jesus comes to them, and he says these words, I am telling you this before it happens. It's an assurance that's given to them. That just as Ahithophel went out and did what he did, so would this man named Judas. It's already been given, both prophetically and now it will come to pass. Jesus was not surprised by Judas' betrayal. But the difference is David was much surprised with Ahithophel's. David was deceived by the traitor. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this before it happens. I'm doing more than David could do in the case of Ahithophel. I'm telling you so that you will know that I know that Judas is a traitor and he is going to fulfill the truth that was laid out prophetically in David's time that pointed forward to the greatest betrayal of the greatest king. It was given it as encouragement. This isn't catching me by surprise. Be confident. These things have to come to pass. And this incident then serves as a dual purpose. It is one, it serves as an allusion to the betrayal of Judas with an encouragement for them to remember what happened to Ahithophel. Do you remember what happened to Ahithophel? When he found out all that was happening, he went out and he hanged himself. 2 Samuel 17, 23. What happened to Judas? When Judas understood everything that was going on in Matthew 27, in verse 3, it says, Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. Unfortunately, he didn't change his heart. He changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver that he sold out Jesus for. And he came to the chief priests and the elders in verse 4 saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Yes, he had. What does he try to do? He tries to fix it himself. Here, take the money back. I want no part of this. I'm washing my hands of this. He couldn't. They say to him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, he went, and he hanged himself. Jesus says, this is not taking me by surprise. 
Just as Ahithophel betrayed his king and went out and hung himself, so Judas is betraying his king and he will go out and he too will hang himself. And again, the entire context is given as an encouragement for them to persevere through the days ahead, not just the immediate context of the cross of Calvary, but for what was going to take place in their own lives by identifying with him that they could expect to suffer that they could expect to be betrayed, that they could expect to have all sorts of insults and rocks thrown at them. So he anticipates their suffering. And just as they were rejected, they too would be rejected for following him. They would be rejected for proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ alone as the way to be reconciled to God over and against the Jews' way of keeping all of those laws and denying Christ. He's encouraging them to stand firm, to stand fast in the midst of their suffering. So we see here, instead of being stumped by Judas' betrayal, the apostles could be encouraged. Their faith could be strengthened. That what was happening in their midst had been foretold. It was a fulfillment of Scripture. And oh, by the way, thank God it wasn't me. Right? Again, this doctrine of election is often given as an encouragement for the believer to persevere. Not just in this context. In Romans 8, a verse that most know well, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. That's a great encouragement. It's an encouragement to those who were taking a stand for the gospel. An encouragement to those who in Rome were facing great persecution at the hands of the Jews. But verse 29, in the context of the love of God and those who love Him and know all things work together for good, he says, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In the context of God's electing love, of choosing a people for Himself, the great question, who can be against us? That doesn't mean that there wouldn't be people against them. You could expect it. Come back to this truth. You're God's child. He chose you. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be hard times. Remember Christ. Peter puts it the same way in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and following. You remember he writes those to the exiles of the dispersion. Those who had been scattered for the sake of the gospel. Because of the persecution that they'd endured in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. And he comes to those people in verse 2. The scattering, the election of exiles to be scattered, he says, was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the reason he says that was to encourage them. In verse 6, in this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of your faith may be genuine, more precious than gold, and more tested, as tested by fire. And when you come through it, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He calls them the elect. And he calls them the elect in writing a letter to them who were suffering. And he's saying, remember the purpose of your suffering. God ordained it. 
He doesn't catch God by surprise. So the doctrine of election, dear friends, should never be a source of division. I'm going to say that again. The doctrine of election should never be a source of division. It's never given to be divisive in Scripture. But it's given in many contexts to encourage the believers to press on for the sake of the gospel. The second reason that we often see election given in Scripture, and by the way, this is against the caricature that's often given of those that believe these things, another reason is to encourage us to be bolder and more zealous in our evangelism. Have you ever heard, well, you that believe in the frozen chosen, then you're not missions oriented and you don't believe in evangelism. You met one? Again, the, the brothers that I hang around that claim to believe these great doctrines in many ways are more evangelistic and much more mission-minded than those that are making the accusations. But the purpose of election should spur us to missions. It should spur us to evangelism. The Apostle Paul, you remember, in writing to his dear Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, after he laid out all of his persecutions and all of his sufferings and all that he'd been through, he wrote, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There's a twofold statement there. Paul is saying, I suffer all that I do for the sake of the elect. But he says, the elect that have not yet come to salvation. You see that? So that they may obtain it. What Paul was saying is, my suffering, my persecution, my calling, my purpose, I suffer all of these things for their sake. And it makes me bolder to go to them. More bold in my evangelism for the sake of the glory of Christ and salvation. So that they may obtain that salvation that they've been set apart for. In other words, Paul is disagreeing. God's end has been determined. They will obtain salvation. The glorious means that He has provided to obtain that salvation is me and my proclamation of the gospel and my suffering for the sake of the elect. And that is the calling for all who know Christ. It should spur us to evangelism and not to run from it. Very quickly, I want us to look at the example then that God gives, particularly in this case, of the reprobate side. Verse 13, 18, and 30, we've already, I mean, 21 and following, we've already read the story itself. How when Jesus makes this statement, I know whom I've chosen, and one of you is going to lift up this heel against me, one of you is going to betray me. I think it's interesting to know that they didn't know who Jesus was talking about. And so in the context of our evangelism, we need to take care and understand, we don't know either. We go for the sole purpose of proclaiming the gospel, teaching the gospel, living the gospel. We don't know who the elect are. And by the way, some are present this morning, are elect, and you don't know it either. The moment you know it is when you come to faith in Christ. So they didn't know. There's this questioning about it from the reprobation. Is it me? Am I the one that's going to do it? And so Peter reaches over and he taps John on the shoulder and he says, what, what, What's going to happen? Ask him. Who's he talking about? 
Jesus says, the one that I offer the bread will be the one that does it. What we see here in verse 27, I mean verse 26, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after Judas had taken the morsel, after Judas took the morsel, not before, after Judas took the morsel, then Satan entered into him. We read earlier in the context that Satan was dealing with Judas. We read earlier that Judas had been, from God's, I mean, Jesus' divine perspective had been set apart. And we read that in verse 2, that Judas, I mean, that Satan had entered into his heart. But that didn't mean he had entered into him. The temptation was great. His heart was already given over to the things of wickedness. In other words, as we said last week, Satan simply watered the weed. The darkness, the wickedness was already there. He just simply dangled the carrot of betrayal. Judas acted on his own in taking the bread. Led by Satan, yes. Convinced by Satan, however you want to put it. But then, after taking the bread, Satan entered into him. Now, I think this is important. Because those that cry, what about man's free will? Judas just proved it. Man left to himself will act according to his will. He will do the desires of his heart. He will follow through on the actions of evil and wickedness all the days of his life. Now, again, that doesn't mean that all men act out the same way. I said earlier that I think Judas and the description of the magnet-infested man that he was is fairly accurate. He's one of the most despicable, heinous humans that ever lived. He acted out in a much different way than those present this morning who've never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior and have never bowed the knee, act out. But nonetheless, apart from Christ, you will chase after the desires of your own heart. And Judas' problem was greed. And because he didn't get what he wanted, when he wanted it, where he wanted it, he turned on the master. The reprobate choose to do evil. They will act according to their nature. A leopard cannot change its spots. An Ethiopian cannot change the color of his skin. Unless God does a work in the heart of an individual in giving him a new heart, then he will follow through the desires of his heart. What did Judas want? Money. Money. Thirty Measly pieces of silver. And he sold Jesus out. Now again, we might ask the question, why didn't Jesus rat him out? Given the fact that he knew who his betrayer was, why didn't he simply tell the others? Surely Peter would have taken things into his own hands and fixed the situation on the spot, right? Hence the reason he didn't tell them. They had some things to learn from this as well. God had sovereignly chosen Judas to betray Jesus. He didn't tell the others because he didn't want Judas to be stopped. And he knew that Peter or others probably would have gone to great lengths, if not killing Judas on the spot, to make sure that he didn't go out and betray his Lord. Again, the story of Judas is one of those 
incidents in Scripture that is difficult for us to understand. If God knew that Judas would betray his only son, then why did God allow Jesus to choose Judas in the first place? And the question, could Judas have acted otherwise? Could Judas have done something different? Does God's will somehow thwart the will of man? And I hope we demonstrated the answer is no. He simply let Judas carry out the desire of his own heart. We need to be reminded this morning of the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs 16.4 where we read, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Solomon suggested that even the wicked are used by God for His glory. We saw earlier Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that God has not destined us for wrath. Again, the implication is there are those that are destined to condemnation and to wrath. All of this according to the workings of the providence of God. Again, we need to be clear. God chose Judas to be a vessel of destruction, just as He had chosen Pharaoh. Judas acted, however, out of his own sinfulness, out of his own wicked heart. Sinclair Ferguson writes these words in describing Judas' wickedness. He says, at first he would not repent. And I think that's the picture of verse 2 that we read of Judas, of, of Satan entering into the heart of Judas, that, that he was being tempted greatly and he had the opportunities to repent, but he would not. Sinclair Ferguson says, at first he would not repent, Eventually, he could not repent. His heart became hardened and hardened and hardened. And that's the effect of sin in any human heart. Hence the reason God must do a work. He must shatter a hard heart and give a heart of flesh. He must take that dark heart and give you a new heart. He must change, as my former pastor said, your willer. He does that from without. And that's the work of regeneration and the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those who He does that work in, then they do turn from their sin. They do follow Him by faith. They joyfully serve Him all the days of their lives. So very quickly, three thoughts concerning both election and or reprobation uh, reprobation for our consideration this morning. First of all, those who are elect and you know it. Those of you that are making your calling and election sure. Those of you that God, you know, has chosen you to be saved because you have followed Him in faith and uh, trusted in Him for all things and you are satisfied with Christ, then, dear friends, you should rejoice today. Those who know they're of the elect know they did not deserve their salvation. That it was, in fact, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, on the holy H-O-L-Y, Grace of God that you know Christ is your Lord and Savior. What did we deserve? What all men deserve because of our sinfulness. But God, in His mercy, richly poured that out upon you. And dear friends, that is the reason that you should rejoice in election and not let this to be a knowledge that can puff us up. Secondly, we should treat those who do not interpret the doctrines of God's choice as we uh, with love and respect. 
we should treat those with love and respect that don't interpret it the way that we did, that, that we do. In Southern Baptist life, there are those, as I've demonstrated, that more than agree to disagree with us. They just flat out disagree. But friends, listen. I would not say of those men, they're not believers. You see, the issue is not the gospel. As a matter of fact, I would go a step further and say election is not the gospel. And we have friends, I have friends, that bring election into everything. Like you have to understand election before you can be saved. That's not what the Scriptures teach. Those that don't see things the way that we do, we need to treat with love and respect as brothers in Christ. You see, the difference is here. The gospel is not different. If their gospel is different, then we need to break away from them. We need to make sure that they understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is His death, burial, and resurrection, and that sinful men need to receive that and that alone as the work for them, the merit for their salvation, and receive His righteousness. If their gospel's different, we've got an issue. But for the most part, those that disagree with the doctrines of grace aren't disagreeing with the gospel itself. It's what takes place to get us to the gospel. In other words, do we do it on our own and then God does a work or does God do a work and then we get there? And that really is the difference. For those that believe that God looked down the quarters of time and made his decision based on what we do, I I humbly disagree with. But I don't disagree with their gospel. There are many today that are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that will never understand, even on a level that some of us do, the doctrines of grace. As a matter of fact, how many of you, when you came to knowledge, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, understood the doctrines of grace? Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, most men are saved as Arminians. We grew into the understanding of the doctrines of grace somewhere along the way. So let's keep that in mind. Let's not call the ones that disagree with us unbelievers. Let's don't say they don't know the gospel. Let's have a gospel discussion with them. What is the gospel? And out of that may we, if the opportunity presents itself, fully interpolate more of these wonderful doctrines that God has given to us. Am I saying that you can have little understanding, if no understanding of election, and be saved? I am saying that. I do think you have a fuller understanding of salvation if you understand these things. But I am saying that there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that never heard these things preached. Because their pastors ignored it. They conveniently pass over them. However, there are those. But if they continue to lie, then we do have to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, I am telling you, you're being disingenuous. I'm telling you as a brother in Christ, these aren't the things that are believed. If they are, rebuke them. But if not, then quit painting this picture. Because I will say this, a person that persists in lying, the Scriptures are clear. Their father's who? The devil. And they're not born of God.
Father, again, I pray that when we consider these truths, 